This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Howard, uh, I'm the leader and I do most of the teaching in the church. It's really great to have you with us if you're a visitor. Uh, we're starting a, a, a series called Culture Shift. Um, and uh, I, I really, really worked hard on this uh, series. Uh, in fact, I, I sent the design back to our designer twice. And I added in, so we've got a little bit of Babylon on the right-hand side. We've got a little bit of, does anyone know what that, what, what, on the left-hand side? Michelangelo's David, which stands for humanity, the love of humanity. And then we've got a little uh, clue in there. If I said to you, what was the, the image or the icon or the object that best summed up the 21st century, what would you say? I've given you a clue, so just because I know that if we take forever, you'll be slow. What's the, what, what would be the image or icon of the 21st century? Technology, the smartphone. So there's 15 billion smartphones have been sold since 2007. Uh, yeah, my family have had most of them. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, oh, don't break your phone. Well, you know, a three-year contract, what if your phone breaks? Anyway, so yeah, we've, we worry about that. We always keep an, a, a spare old one just in case in the background. Um, and, and the, but the smartphones have become part of our bodies, haven't they? Uh, hands up if you're touching your smartphone now. Okay, I'm watching you, Alex. You know, this, they, 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 they interrupt us. You know, uh, you're in conversation with your wife. I know, I know that, that, that you don't do this, but you're in conversation with your wife. You get a beep. It's like, oh, suddenly it's more important than my wife. Uh, you know, they're, they're monitoring us. You know, I get this, I've got this app that tells me what percentage I've slept. So, you know, when I get 100%, like, you have had a super sleep. Yeah, whether, I, I don't know whether I've had a sleep or not. I, that, I've, I've abdicated that responsibility. My smartphone tells me, you know, they're constantly teaching us. You know, my, I've got a new car, by the way. Uh, you know, ha, how come I can't get the phone to work over the car system? Google. Mr. Google, let, tell me what the answer is. And, of course, the, the, the massive thing, and I think this is huge, is photographing us. Photographing us. In 2013, the selfie... Uh, that's defined as an image, if you don't know what one is, but I'll define it for you anyway, an image that includes oneself and is taken by oneself, usually for posting on social media, was invented by, guess which nation? Because they put it on the end of everything. Barbie, you know, kind of whatever. So everything goes, so an, Aust an Australian, I understand he was drunk, an thank you, Drew is an Australian. Uh, in 2002, a drunk Australian took a picture of himself and said, sorry about the selfie, it's a little blurred. That's a year before Facebook. Now, Apple and Google, the two kind of operating systems for our phones, estimate that 180 million selfies are taken every day. 180 million. There's more photographs being taken in the last year than the whole of human history. We love to take photos of ourselves. Uh, 18 to 24-year-olds, hands up if that's you. We need more of those, but it's good. We got good. 18 to 24-year-olds reported that every third photo they took was a selfie. So two of the Holiday Beach 
one of themselves on the beach. I've realised that my daughter has learnt to pose for selfie world. I've got this kind of born in 1960s, can't smile. You know, how do you smile for a photo? But she's just amazing. She just knows how to do it amazingly. In fact, one study of 18-year-old girls said that they take more than eight selfies a day. I'm not against selfies, but why am I mentioning that? Because when we're talking about... It's interesting what selfie... Isn't that a typical example of community on the left-hand side, just as we're there? You know? We were on holiday in in Croatia, camping, and you walk past little family group after family group, and they're all... I mean, I was the same. I was watching the cricket, watching us beat the Australians. Let's hope they... Yeah, let's not mention that. But, you know, there's all family groups, and, and nobody's talking. But the, why do we take selfies? Because we're, we're basically, why, why do we take selfies? Do you want to play? Why do we take selfies? Because we, we look amazing. <laughs> because you look amazing, Flick. But because we, we, we're slightly in love with ourselves. You know, that the, the me culture, find yourself, be true to yourself, follow your heart, is the prevailing culture. Psychology Today, not a magazine that I recommend, said this in 2008 individualism is well on the way to becoming the central theme of the 21st century. Me generation baby boomers, that would be me, did indeed look out for number one in the hedonistic, that means pleasure-seeking, therapeutic, that means please sort my mind out, uh, 70s, but now individualism, acting in one's own interests versus those of an organised group or movement, movement, is, uh, or government, is arguably the guiding principle of our time. I found this quote, sound, it's, because it's a Russian, it makes me sound very intelligent, but I found it somewhere else, I didn't read the guy's book. He said this, defining this culture, expressive individualism is a desire to be free to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment Fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It's the drive to be both authentic and autonomous. Authentic, becoming more like what you already are, and autonomous to live by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their own personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty, and with the meaning of some of our basic human rights. This is given pride of place in our self-understanding. This is a huge culture shift. This is a huge culture shift. And I'm not preaching on it because I want to lock and load on you. I'm preaching on it because God locked and loaded on me. When I was, um, I was doing a series uh, called Divine Sex, which some of you found uncomfortable, some of you found challenging, some of you thought, well done for addressing. And I'm reading about culture and, and sexuality, and I came across this phrase, expressive or radical individualism. I thought, this is really interesting, but I'd put it in the box to do with sexuality, and that was it. And then what happened, my brother-in-law, who leads a church, um, gave me this book. And, and if you give me a book, normally I say, thank you, it's really kind. And on we go. And I never even read the book. I, honestly, I've got a big pile of books, and I, and I, I don't even get to book. And then I'm, what, I'm looking at a podcast... I pick up a tweet about a podcast called This Cultural Moment. I know that Ollie at the back has listened to it, and I know that one or two others called This Cultural Moment. And and I basically thought, this is really, really interesting. 
The guy that runs the podcast called This Cultural Moment is a guy called John Mark Comer, who's from Portland, Oregon, and a guy called Mark Sayers from Melbourne, Australia. And he wrote this book, Disappearing Church. I thought, I've heard of this book. I read it, and I found it incredibly challenging. So what I'm going to try and do is take the kind of stuff from John Mark Sayers, who's incredibly bright. You can go on his church website, listen to this cultural moment, get a lot, lot more that I'm going to say. But I'm basically taking that, and I'm trying to say, okay, how do we, how do we push that through? How do we push that through to understand culture? Uh, okay, that's what I'm, I'm just doing that so you think, he's a cheat. Now, I, I, honestly, I don't really have original thoughts. I'm mostly a synthesizer of other people's thoughts. Okay, so you know where it's coming from, okay? So that, that, that's kind of my integrity. So if anybody thinks he's a plagiarist, that's my integrity chip. But um, there's a novelist, L.P. Hartley, said that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And for me, in 50... I'm, I'm, I'm 60 next year. Oh, horrible. But I'm 60 next year, but the past is a foreign country. The past is a foreign country. Uh, American professor Daniel Yankovic said this. His book's called New Rules, Searching for Self-Fulfillment in a World Turned Upside Down. He said this. Old rules, he stressed. Old rules stress the duty to others. The importance of self-denial that used to be assumed in Western countries, especially duty to family and nation. He's not talking about Christians, he's talking about the nation. Obviously, he said that people are not sacrificial all the time, but it was embarrassing to be seen to be seen as selfish because the prevailing ethic was self-denial. That's the old country. The old country was duty to others, duty to others. Self-denial and sacrifice were seen as these really, really great virtues. Now, this is the new country. He says, now in the new rules, this has been replaced by duty to self-ethic in which the primary responsibility is our own self-fulfillment, everything must fit around that priority. Yeah? Challenging. So what I want to do in this series is basically answer two big questions, and I'm not going to answer them today, but we're going to set them up and hopefully hit them in the next few weeks home. So the first big question is, I think it was on, still on there, it said, how do disciples of Jesus, if you're a Christian today, that's hopefully what you are. Not just a church attender, but you're a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus in the 21st century, how do you live in that century, uh, in that culture with an emphasis on self-fulfillment, personal freedom, and consumer choice? I'm going to unpick that. How do you live in that? You know, nobody says self-fulfillment's bad, personal freedom's bad, consumer choice is bad. Nobody says that's bad. But how do we live in a culture where that shapes us so much? And how do we live in the flip side of that culture? How do disciples of Jesus live in a culture that views Christianity as judgmental, oppressive, and restrictive, the enemy of freedom and self-expression? Are those interesting questions? We need to know the answers to those, and and, and we can't just put it on one side. The thing is, the Bible doesn't give us a how-to guide. You can't turn in your Bible to a chapter that says, how to live in 21st century culture. It doesn't do it that way. In fact, there's no, it's not even how to live in first century culture. There's, there's not a chapter like that. What it does, it tells us stories of people living in exiles. So the subtitle of this series, Culture Shift, is Disciples in Exile. What does that mean to be in exile? It means to be moved to a foreign culture, a foreign country. And the most obvious of these is the book of Daniel. 
Now in this series, I just want to let you know that what we're not going to do is take the whole of the book of Daniel and try and tell you about Daniel's challenges. What we're trying to do is, and, and I think it's naughty and often criticize other preachers for doing it, and I'm going to do it, is we're going to kind of springboard off Daniel into our culture. Because you're probably much more bothered about how to live now than how Daniel lived then, eh? So if I do, if I take a few liberties, it's because I'm trying to connect the two. There's continuity and discontinuity between Daniel and the culture. There's things that are the same about Daniel's life and our life, and there's things that are different, and I'm going to try and help us to go there. So we're going to, inf- uh, I've got four, cert- four cert- talks this week. We have, next week's the church birthday down in the lower hall, and then we've got three bang, 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 one after another about that. So that's what um, we're going to do. So let's read a few verses from Daniel and uh, get our brains in gear. We good? You interested? Good. I hope I serve you well. Okay, so Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's the king of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the gold and silver articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king orders Ashpenaz. How do you say that, Nate? Ashpenaz. Uh, <laughs> she said, are, are you going to be okay with these readings? <laughs> it's got some hard words in <laughs> I said, yes, but obviously not. Now I'm standing here in the pressure. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Uh, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve. So that would be all you lot, wouldn't it? Beautiful, clever, easy to learn, sharp cookies. Okay, he he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them amount of food and wine from the king's table. Hmm, Interesting, we'll be having food and wine from the king's table later. But food and wine from the king's table. Among those who were chosen from uh, Judah was Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle and Azariah. Is that good? Azariah. Okay, who does he play for? Okay, the chief official gave them new names. Oh man, I'm really in deep water now. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. We often know them as Shadrach. To Michelle, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. I first ever, when I first ever heard this, Andy Allen, who used to be an elder here, preached and he called them my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. Daniel, Meshach, Yorshak, and a bungalow. So that's where we're going to go from now, okay? So Daniel, Meshach, Yorshak, and a bungalow uh, were in Babylon. But, the, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, but asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Okay, good. Let me pray. Father, we just pray as we try and do this complicated journey of understand the water we're swimming in. But that's tough to see the water we're swimming in. And, and, and try to understand what your Bible, your word has to say about it. Lord, I pray that, 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 that you would unravel us in a good way. Lord, I pray that you'd unravel me and you'd unravel us in a good way. I pray that suddenly our eyes would be open and think, ah, that is the culture we're in. And then we'd understand in these weeks to come how to live in that culture, in the world, but not of the world. I pray help us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. So the cities of Jerusalem and Babylon are iconic. Jerusalem stands for the city of 
God. Okay, yes, good. One person said it, so I'll assume you're all there. Uh, Jerusalem stands for the city of God. It's a city of God's shalom. It's Jehovah's shalom. It's a city of God's peace, God's good world, as it were. It's a city of God's good kingdom. And the people of Jerusalem, the, the Jews or the Hebrews, their identity, their freedoms, their choices and patterns of behavior were shaped by what? It is a Sunday school answer. God, yeah. They're shaped by God. In other words, it's what, what sociologists call a theocracy. And we freak at that, that, that kind of word because it's got all kind of ideas of ISIS and stuff. But a theocracy or a creedal society, in other words, it's based on a common understanding of beliefs about God and God's word and God's rule. Yeah? So they, that's how what shaped them. It's that, that God's word and God's rule and God's big story shaped their freedoms, their identity, their choices and patterns of behavior. Okay? So that's Jerusalem. That's where they lived. And then they get taken to Babylon, which stands for the city of... City of sin. I would say the city of humanity, the city of mankind. Where do we first hear of Babylon? There's a clue there. The Tower of Babel. That's where it comes from. Babylon. It's the Tower of Babel. When we read in, in Genesis chapter 11, the humanity is just kind of being kicked out of the garden because they rejected God and it's chaos and sin has come and damage and, and brokenness has come. And the people say to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. In other words, Babylon stands for humanity, the city of people who want to make a name for themselves. In other words, where do they want to go? They want to build a tower with their own ingenuity that reaches up to where God dwells, into God's sphere, where God's authority was, because we want to put ourselves there. And that's what Babylon does. And so though, though Babylon had many temples and idols, the true God of Babylon was, and this is where you think I might be twisting it a little bit, was self, personified by its king, Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to find out in a couple of weeks how that ha happens, how he makes a statue, and I think it's of himself, and he says, you bow down to me. And you could say that's an example of a di tyrannical dictator, but the reality is self Yourself is a tyrannical dictator. It wants you to bow down to it, and it wants everyone else to bow down to you. So when you take your selfie and you get loads of likes, everybody's bowing down. Isn't that lovely? You get no likes, oh my word, no one's bowing down to me. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. So if you want to explore the parables between Daniel and Meshach, Yorshak and a bungalow, and the Christians today... We find ourselves exiled from the city of God where identity and choice and patterns of behavior are defined by God and God's word into the city of self. Tracking so far? Okay. So let's see what happens. Daniel uh, chapter 1 says, We read, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it, and carried off the gold and silver articles from the temple of God to the temple of his God in Babylon. Young men without... Uh, physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude in every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's temple were taken there. The first thing we need to understand is, who allowed Jerusalem to fall? 
God. Thank you, Peter. Jerusalem, I, uh, God, to fall. That's what it says in the first chapter. So we need to understand the cultural shifts that's happened in our society. Who's in charge? God. We must not forget that because it looks bad right now, right? It looks bad right now. It looks like, how can you be a Christian in this culture? It looks bad right now. It looks like everybody's forgotten. God's in charge. Fourth week, we're going to look at what's God up to. Not that I know, but I can. the Bible gives us some hints. We've got to remember, God's in charge. But what we see here is Nebuchadnezzar taking the best of Jerusalem. He takes the best people and the silver and gold from the temple and takes it into his culture. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar wants to assimilate the Jews or the people into his culture. Assimilation means that we want to shape and change your way of thinking from this Jerusalem way of thinking to this Babylon way of thinking. And the reality is, that is what has happened. That's what's happened. The interesting thing is that the, 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 the culture of self actually rises out of the soil of Christianity. Let me say that again. The culture of self rises out of the soil of Christianity. I'll talk in more detail about it, but I read, read this book called How the West Won by Rodney Stark. He's not a Christian, he's a social historian. That's what I read for fun on holiday. Sorry to be a boring. Uh, but, you know, this book talks about how, how the modernity, that's the age we're in, the culture we're in, rose out of Christianity. Why did it arise in the West? Because Christianity got embedded in the West. And, and, and you need to understand the sense of uh, Christianity uh, creates this background for, for the rise of, 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 of modernity. So Christianity creates the background for science. I'll talk about it in more detail, but the fact that God is a logical, rational God was the birth of science. Most scientists in the past were Christians. A lot of them are now. God's the birth of rationality. Gives rise to science and technologies birthed out of that. Uh, the, the, the value of the individual. Why do we value the individual in this culture? Because God says you're made in his image. That's why it matters. That's why 20,000 people march in Belfast last week. It didn't make the news because of abortion rights. Because people matter. And, and we've got to understand that, that that is important. The fact that you valued human rights are birthed out of the rights of individuals. You look at Roman and Greek culture, they didn't care about anybody's rights. If you were rich, they cared about you. If you were poor, you're disposable. Christianity gives the, to the rise of human rights. And Christianity gives the rise to the idea of progress. If you look at Greek, uh, uh, if you look at Eastern culture, they believe it's a cycle. You know, it's kind of karma. Everything goes round. The world's going round in cycles. But it's Christianity, it's Judo-Christianity, Jewish and Christian, that says the world is broken and God's on a story to make it new, to make a new age. And that, those things are part of the narrative now. Science and technology, the value of the individual, the, 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 the fact that we believe that things are going to get better. I mean, we may, not, we may look around, even though culture tells us everything's going to get better, we may look around and say it's not getting better. But that narrative, if you're uh, uh, from that side of, uh, of politics, they're called the progressive left. Why? Because we believe that things are going to get better. Things are going to get better. Mark Sayers, who, whose book I quoted, says this, Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting of it is its cost. 
commitments and sorry, I'll read that in one sentence. While cutting up its costs, commitments, and the restraints that the gospel places on the individual will. In other words, we want the value of the individual. We want science and technology. We want to believe in a better world, but we don't want the costs, commitments, and the restraints that the gospel puts on it. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for justice, rightness. I want the world not to be in a mess, but to be right. And the shalom or the peace of God's kingdom, and this is the kicker, while defending the unquestioned reign of the individual will. Mark says, brilliant phrase, this is where Ollie called me out and said, ha-ha, you've used this phrase, I know where you've been going. We want the kingdom without the king. So we want all the benefits that Christianity brought, and I'll unpack that for you in another talk, all the benefits that Christianity brought, but we don't want the, 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 the costs and the commitments and the constraints, because we want to be the king. Do you agree with that? Can you see that? Twenty-first century culture. This is my quote, not his. Twenty-first century culture believes in the value of every individual, a world without pain and suffering, the perfecting of humanity, a new age that can be arrived at by our own efforts. We believe humanity can build our own beautiful city, our own Babel Tower, and so create our own heaven, and we can do it all without God. We want a world without suffering. We want the value of every individual. We want the perfecting of humanity. We want this glorious new age, this utopia, where we can have coffee and brunch and nice design, and everything's lovely, but we want it all without God. We want to achieve it all by our own efforts. That's what the phrases say. That's what the Disney movies tell you, that if you believe in yourself enough, you can get that place. You can go to that place. That's what the ad agencies tell you. So I've just bought, as I said, I've just bought a new car. I guess in one sense you think, when I buy a new car, I'm going to be fulfilled and happy. But immediately you feel disappointed because it doesn't have that in it, and it doesn't have that in it, and that doesn't work. And, that, and, you, and you immediately think, why have I spent all that money? Because we're drawn into the fact that if we spend the money and we're part of consumer culture, that we can have this happy world. And we can do it all without God. And I'll talk about that in the last uh, talk. Expressive individualism, that's the culture we're in, that's the water we're in, views biblical faith as a narrow, simplistic lens. In other words, get a, get a grip, guys, Christians. What is the matter with you? Christianity is a powerful straitjacket, they believe, that limits our liberty, our choices, our freedom to be truly ourselves. It reduces individual pleasure and human progress. God is the problem. Because without God, when we're truly free, the human individual can achieve anything. That, those two are the cultural narratives we are in. We're in there. Mark Sayers again says, we are experiencing not the erasing of God from the Western mind, but the enthroning of self as the greatest authority. God is relegated to the therapist and the masseur of unquestioned autonomy of this human soul. In other words, me and my life and what I want to do, God's job is to massage me so I don't feel bad and to speak to me so I feel okay about those things. And that's the culture 
that we're being trying to be assimilated into. Daniel's wants, the story tells Babylon's desire to take the brightest and best and beautiful, it's important that they're beautiful, and assimilate them into the culture. Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had the officials teach them the language and literature of Babylon. Babylon. Is there a language to our culture? Is there a language to our culture? You know that if you misspeak, you lose your job as a politician. So a, co- a politician said this, and I don't want to offend anybody. And I'm tra- she said, she talked about a coloured person rather than a person of colour. And she lost her job. There's a language to our culture. Now, I'm not saying that language doesn't matter. I think we were lazy in our language before. We were, we were racist in our language. We, we oppressed minorities with our language before. But there is now a language of our culture. Would you agree? And you need to say the right things. And there's a knowledge to our culture. There's a certain of, a sense of this is what you must know. This is what you must assimilate. So what I find when I talk to my kids who are in their 20s now, they've lived in Babylon all their life. And they get the culture. And when I say things, I realize, oh my word, I, I, I'm, I'm standing on the culture. Sometimes they kick me and say, Dad, what do you like? And sometimes I kick them and say, wake up and smell the coffee. What have you believed? So it's an interesting balance. I can see a little dynamic going on there in the family. So they had to be taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. It's interesting, what we eat, and we've talked about this, who we eat with and what we eat says a lot about our culture. We're obsessed with food, aren't we? I read a quote somewhere, I should have put it up, that actually people are more bothered about what you eat than who you sleep with. I said again, people are more bothered about what you eat than who you sleep with. We're more obsessed by what goes into our body than what we do with our body. Food and drink matters. They were to be trained for three years. This was the University of Babylon. And after that, they were entered the king's service. Among those chosen from Judah was those guys. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azara. <laughs> the plan was to baptize these people into the water of Babylon's culture to have them eat and drink the wine of Babylon's culture so they become part of it. How did they do that? They changed their identity. The names were changed. Here's the names, interesting. Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. In other words, he's my defender. He tells me who I am. He tells me what's right and wrong. God decides. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning protect the life of the king. In other words, God protects you because he's your judge. No, you protect the king. Hananiah, God is gracious. God gives to you, gives and gives and gives to you. Shadrach, meaning I obey the command of Abu. Aku. Michelle, who is like God, becomes Meshach, who is like Aku. Azariah means God helps, becomes Abednego, servant of Nego. It's really interesting, isn't it? The gods of Babylon are needy. The gods of self are needy. The God of heaven is not needy, but the gods of self are needy. Protect me, obey me, copy me, serve me. 
But Daniel refused to be assimilated to the culture. Daniel resolved not to defile himself, he used that word twice, with the food and wine, and he asked the chief official permission not to defile himself. You might know how the story goes, but they refused to eat the meat. But the truth is, most of us have eaten the meat. Most of us have eaten the meat. You know, there wasn't just four guys that went from Jerusalem. There were a stack of them. Four of them didn't eat the meat. The rest of them did. Four of them didn't bow down. The rest of them did. Unless your name's Daniel in here, or Meshach, Shadrach, and a bungalow, you probably ate the meat. I've eaten the meat. Ten years in Cheltenham has discipled me that it's all about me. Let me give you a little quest question, and I might get you to turn to the person next to you and say, yes or no, I believe this. So here's some questions. It's a little bit of a trick question. I'm trying to throw you into a little straw man, and then I'm going to cut you down later. But here we go. How about this? Do you believe the highest good is found in liberty of self-expression, freedom from suffering, and pursuit of happiness? Turn to your neighbor and say, yes or no. Some of you are good at lying. Think about it, really. Are you against freedom of, of liberty, freedom of expression, freedom from suffering, pursuit of happiness? Are you against that? Yes or no? Tricky, eh? How about this? Do you believe that justice is the fight for the right to individual self-definition and self-expression? Yes or no? Do you believe that humans are inherently good? Some of you are old and know that. <laughs> it's like when Jesus said, who is without sin, cast the first stones, the oldest ones go away first. Do you believe the world will inevitably improve as people become more educated, tolerant, and freer? Come on! Education, education. Remember good old Tony Blair? Wouldn't you love him back now? Oh, dear. No, 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 no. How about this one? Do you believe that no institution authority, authority has the right to challenge your in, the integrity of your personal autonomy? In other words, no one's got the right to tell you what to do. Do you believe that? It's really interesting because the things of me culture are actually sound good. And if you say, I don't believe in freedom and liberty and expression, I believe in autonomy and, and I believe in, 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 in institutions like the church telling you what to do. And church leaders telling you what to do. And I say jump and you say how high. I'm not saying that, but it's interesting that, that, that we feel the, hang on a minute, don't we? Let me explore it in a different way. I'm, I'm, I'm almost landing now. Me culture or me cultural individualism erodes community. Me, cultural, individualism erodes community. Who has ever done that? I can't make it tonight. I'm sorry. We do, don't we? Because at those moments when community comes calling, what happens for me is that my sofa comes calling. <laughs> you know, when, when, when community comes calling, uh, you know, my diary says, hang on a minute. But when golf comes calling... I mean, I'm quite embarrassed for myself. I started to play early ball golf, which is like it starts at quarter to seven. You know, I think, man, I get up at quarter to seven, but, but Paul Hunt and Andy text me and said, you want to get for your three on Friday at quarter to seven? I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, no. <laughs> That's just you, Andy, isn't it? Yes. Sorry, I can't make it. 
it undermines, why, why? People in our society want community. Do you want community? Do you want friends? If you're sitting on your own, you need to get some friends. No, sorry, no. Um, but you want community, but we push back because it reduces our personal autonomy. That commitment to true community uh, uh, causes. So here's an example on our holiday. On our holiday, we say to our kids, there's 10, 10 adults basically on holiday. We go with another family, 10 adults. And it's exhausting because what happens is you go along, the, you know you know what it's like, you go to the things and, and all the girls stop at this stall and they're like faffing about with bracelets and hats and T-shirts and all my boys are like... <clears throat> and we say to them, you have to sacrifice personal freedom for community. It's called compromise. It's a great line if you're a parent, once your kids understand what freedom and autonomy is. Great line. You have to sacrifice it, but we don't want to, do we? So this can create sporadic engagement, which turns into feeling isolated or frustrating, or the community is not meeting my needs. A lot of people leave church and say, you know the trouble with that church is not very friendly? And I would say the trouble with that church is you never were there. Thank you for laughing, Todd. Extreme individualism. We push back against anything that sparks of institutionalism. So we'd, I, 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 I'll, I'll show you my workings. So we would have a, a, a meal that, that, that said, God first leaders want to invite you to a welcome lunch. Nobody wants to come. Because it feels like, this is institutionalizing me. You're processing me through the system. But if I said to somebody, do you want to come to my house for lunch next week? They go, yeah, cool. Because one of them feels an oppressor of an institution. The church is asking me to do this. We feel that all the time. So regular commitments and diary planning are resistant to choice. We want the community there, but we want to opt out if we don't want it. But they better be there, because if I go and there's no one else, I feel like, what's on? Yeah? Do you, do you understand that dynamic? If you lead a group, do you understand that dynamic? Sunday attendance is a clue. I'm not going to smack on about Sunday attendance, but do we gather with God's community of God's people, do you see that as an imposition on the freedom for you to do what you want? It's so easy. I had a time when we moved, when we moved to Cheltenham and I was going to Trinity for a year and I wasn't, we were like just starting to gather people and I didn't have to go. And it's so easy to think, well, I would just want to go this week. One more. Me culture, uh, individualism erodes discipleship. I don't know why it's a lady doing that because normally it's like, this country needs you. Yeah? Don't you tell me what to do. We talked about that last week. If you, didn't get, didn't, if you weren't around, we talking about Matthew 18, when someone in church is challenging you. That's massive, isn't it? Don't you tell me what to do. Who are you to tell me? Nobody's built the friendship bridges enough to tell you really the truth about yourself, have they? I mean, me and wa- my, my wife and I have got uh, friendship and relationship bridges that go, go back a number of years, but like, when it comes to like she tells me, I think, oh, don't. It's really countercultural to allow people to say, you know, this is what the Bible says. I wrote this. The enthroning of self as the greatest authority has increasingly regulated God to servant, of the per- per- servant, servant to the personal world. That's what Mark says. But I, put, I thought the Bible as creedal authority, in other words, as truth in our lives, as displaced as the foundation for who we think. And it's supplanted by personal experience, desire, and preference. 
when we get to the Bible says this, and I want to do that, you know what we tend to do is say, oh, the Bible's got it wrong. We don't tend to say, I've got it wrong. How you respond to gospel challenges will tell you how embedded individualism is in your heart. Let's read this and then get it down. I read this quote, and I felt like, just Lord Jesus, help me. A mode of church engagement characterized by commitment, resilience and sacrifice, we'll talk about that in future weeks, has disappeared, he says, among many Western believers. In its place as a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction is emerging. This, new, this mode is characterized by spirodic engagement, passivity, commitment, phobia, and a consumerist framework. I thought, Lord, it's, it's, we're here. Sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment, phobia, and a consumerist framework. We've been assimilated into Babylon. I'm not pointing the finger at you, I have. We've lived so long in Babylon that we think self-love is a virtue called self-esteem. You know that problem is they don't have enough self-esteem. They need to love themselves more, and then we'd all be happy. Paul writes this to his disciple Timothy. He says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there'll be difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. Well, we're not in those times, are we? No, definitely not. People are loaning themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobeying their parents, we're definitely in that time, and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving and unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. They'll be cruel and hate what is good. What Paul's saying is there's a, there's a, a, a narrative up here that talks about this wonderful utopia, but down here is bitterness and Twitter storms and ah. They'll betray their friends and be reckless. They'll be puffed up with self and love pleasure rather than love God. They might act religious, but they reject the God who can make them godly. Oh, Father, we're there. Help us, help us, help us. Jesus says this, doesn't he? Whoever wants to be my disciple, read it for me, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. When we break bread, what we're saying is that Jesus denied himself. That he, his, he allowed his very self to be torn apart, his very body to be broken. He, he surrendered himself to, a, to a, an outside authority, he ascended himself to, to Roman cross. He, he, he gave away his self. He let himself go. He talked about unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains on its own. He was going to fall into the ground and die. His body was going to be broken. His blood was going to be shed. And he says, you must come the same way. And the way that happens is that they're not going to take you outside at the end of the meeting and crucify you, but they're going to ask you, and time after time after time, we're going to be asked to deny ourselves. We're going to be asked, do we really care about this? So someone comes to you and says, does this church do anything for the poor? 
And the, the question should be, can I do anything for the poor? Because we love a church that does something for the poor, but we're all too busy to do it. I am. We pay the price daily. We pay the price daily. To enter the kingdom, we must walk the way of the cross-shaped way of the king. We can't have the kingdom without the king. Bonhoeffer, who I quoted last week, who always smashes it, I'll finish with this, the band need to come back. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, what every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is the dying of the old self, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our following Christ. When Christ called you, he bids you come and die. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.